Thanks, Melanie. Um, uh, have, I wanted to ask you a question just before we got going in the message. Have you ever been in a situation where all of your thoughts and feelings were focused on one thing? All of your attention was completely absorbed by something. Nothing else seemed as important as this fixation. It could have been an infatuation with a person, or anticipating a new purchase, or going on a new adventure of some kind, or being presented with a new opportunity. In the late 1800s, gold was discovered along the Klondike River, and the Alaskan gold rush was on. Hoping to gain wealth they had never dreamed of, tens of thousands, mostly men, walked off their jobs, abandoned their hometowns, and left families behind in order to travel into the unknown. They borrowed money, they mortgaged their property, and spent their entire life savings for the chance to look for gold. They took a, on a lo long, arduous journey so dangerous and difficult that included sub-zero temperatures, rough rivers they had to navigate, and mountains to climb. That even though 100,000 initially joined the Klondike Stampede, only 30,000 or so actually made it all the way to the gold fields. They called it gold fever. These adventurers were consumed with the idea of getting their hands on gold. They acted as though everything else, including their own safety, was less important. When things got tough on the journey, I imagine they looked up, envisioning holding that gold. And with that renewed inspiration, they plotted on and kept going. As I thought about Julie's message last week of look up from Psalm 3, I couldn't help but think of Psalm 24. Uh, I appreciate David Hagemeyer reading that psalm during our worship singing. It has this great stanza in it. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. It uses that same uh, colloquialism that Julie talked about. Looking up is, uh, and, and particularly invoking heads here, is symbolic of God's people rejoicing and taking great joy. Though this whole psalm is rich in metaphors and meaning, it kills me, but I'm not going to analyze it line by line and try to explain all the ways David uses his terms and descriptions to communicate the great glory of God. Instead, I'm planning to talk about the psalm as a whole and the meaning it has from various contexts. Let's, let's give the psalm a read again. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It starts by declaring a declaration of God's ownership of everything and everybody. Then it describes what it takes to stand before God. Who may ascend unto the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted his soul to falsehood, and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob, Selah. Now the psalmist finishes up with a dramatized call to let the king of glory enter. The climax of God coming to Jerusalem. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, 
And be lifted up, ye, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the, this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. You know, this psalm is widely considered by Jewish and Christian scholars alike to be a prophetic psalm pointing to the time when the Messiah was going to come to earth in power and great glory. So we're going to move backwards chronologically through several events connected or thought to be connected with this psalm. That's how we're going to approach it. Look at these different contexts. The first one is this second coming of Christ to set up his millennial kingdom. You know, half a dozen prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Zechariah, and others talk about how the Messiah will come and sit on David's throne and dispense justice and rule the earth. In Zechariah in particular, he talks about, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzzah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. You know who the holy ones are? That's us. This is the Lord's second coming that Zechariah's honed in on. Uh, Ezekiel has sort of a different way to talk about this same thing. But he says this, Then he led me to a gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the Lord God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up, brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is the eastern gate to Jerusalem. The gate you see sort of in the middle, just a little to the right in the picture. It was sealed shut in A.D. 1540 by the order of Suleiman the Magnificent, a sultan of the Ottoman Empire. It's believed that the reason for the closing of the Eastern Gate was he was trying to prevent the Jewish Messiah from gaining entrance to Jerusalem. Jewish tradition states that the Messiah will pass through the Eastern Gate when he comes to rule, based on the couple of passages I just read you. So the Muslim Suleiman was attempting to thwart the Messiah's plans with 16 feet of cement. The Eastern Gate has remained sealed for nearly the past 500 years. We know the New Testament writers also connect these prophecies with Jesus' promise to return. So that's one context. You know, another, some see in this psalm a picture of Jesus' return to heaven after his crucifixion and resurrection. And they, they sort of tie it into a passage in Hebrews that's, that talks about that says this, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, 
not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This idea that there is a heavenly tabernacle, and we read elsewhere that, that the earthly tabernacle is meant to be kind of a picture of it or model of it, uh, but in any event, this one's in heaven, and this is where the sacrifice Christ provided through his blood obtained redemption. Well, let's set that stage. God sent his son into the world on a rescue mission to save us because Jesus was the unique God-man, that is, he was fully God and he was fully man. He could bridge the gap between God and humankind. You know, no human had ever been able to enter heaven and come into the presence of God. And that's why you read in the psalm the question, who can stand in his holy place, the actual place of God? And the answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Well, who could stand? Jesus could stand. He became the first human that could enter, metaphorically, the gates of heaven. And as the call comes to open the gates, there's this sort of challenge that echoes from the sentinel. Who is this king of glory? The call comes back that Jesus, having returned from battle against sin and death, he is the Lord mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. He was the one who was able to lay down the perfect sacrifice on the altar for you and I. So a lot of people see that um, they use this as a picture of that kind of event that must have happened to, to have that Hebrew passage be true. So finally, let's talk about the original intent for the psalm. We're going to go all the way back to King David's day. He was the author of the psalm. And many link the psalm to the time when David brought the ark to Jerusalem for the first time. You know, David loved nothing more than God's presence. And he would go sit in the tabernacle and pray as close as he could be to where God dwelled. He loved doing that. He wanted to build the temple in Jerusalem, replace the tabernacle, but circumstances meant he wasn't free to construct it. However, David collected all of the materials needed so that Solomon, when he took the throne, would have an easy job of it. Well, David wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem. So God's presence would be with his people there in his city. And as we read it throughout the scripture, the holy mountain of God, and it's referring to Jerusalem. It's referring there to where the temple is, up on the temple mount, the place where God dwelled with his people during Old Testament times. After a false start, uh, David set up a great celebration and had the priest bring the ark into the city. This psalm may have been written to celebrate this occasion. It's the kind of thing David would have done. Write a psalm like this to celebrate this great activity. God, working through David, was able to make it a prophetic psalm, as we've already seen earlier. 
So in this psalm, God is extolled for being the creator of the earth and all that it contains. His holiness is recognized as the psalm answers the question, who may ascend unto the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? And the answer is, none of us, only those that have righteousness. In the Old Testament, there are all kinds of pointers to Jesus who provides righteousness for his people. And then there's that great call to the gates of Jerusalem, kind of a personification. Lift up your heads, ye gates. Uh, And again, lift up your heads, that rejoicing of God's people. So the gates are personified, if I'm using that right, to, to represent the people of Jerusalem who would be rejoicing that this would happen. So personification of the rejoicing of the people of Jerusalem that the ark was coming. As they went along, there was a great celebration, and David danced in front of the ark as they came into the city. This is a uh, drawing by somebody that shows David dancing. But, you know, for me, this doesn't reflect the Scriptures well enough. Yeah, the ark is covered, which it had to be by the law when the priests carried it. You have people singing and the tambourines going and so on, and we read about that those kinds of activities, and David certainly appears to be dancing here. Uh, But it says David danced with all his might. And that's a pretty good dance. But I like this stained glass window that shows David really, there's just joy. There's joy in David as he is going through these contortions in this. It captures David's joy of the moment for me. And what was his joy? You see, this was the mighty God, the Lord of hosts, coming to their heart of worship, the King of glory. It was their King coming to Jerusalem. And that's what David wanted most of all. We get that opportunity too to enjoy God and enjoy the Lord. And He comes to us as the mighty warrior. He comes to us as the King of glory. He comes to us as the good shepherd that takes care of His sheep. And He comes to us as the lover that's portrayed in the Song of Solomon. And that is an amazing idea that it would be God himself who would come. You know, Jesus talked a little bit about this when he talked about one of his parables. And that's the parable of the field with the treasure. If you remember it, a man discovered a treasure in a field. It wasn't his, but he went and sold all he had to buy the field. That's it. That's the end of the parable. Just a short little parable. But it, Christ meant it to represent this man's joy, also this man's fixation, his obsession with having this treasure. Remind you a little of the Alaskan gold rush? So here we have a guy, he didn't have gold fever, he had God fever. That's what David had. 
And you know what? He is worth that. He is our treasure. He's our great king. He's the king of glory. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great, great love for us. We thank you that not only just being one who loves us so dearly, but you are a great God, a great king, and the king of glory. Lord, we celebrate you this morning. We thank you for all that you have for us. Lord, we want to fill our sight with you so that everything else in our life pales by comparison. Thank you so much for the Holy Spirit that you've given us, that we can have the actual presence of God in our lives. What a privilege. We thank you today for this opportunity to worship. In your name, amen.